Let me introduce Dr. Samuel Kim, who is assistant professor at the School of Psychology at the University of Denver. His research interests include positive psychology, psychological measurement, bullying, and Korean American mental health. He was also a former president of the Korean American Coalition, DFW chapter. Dr. Kim is a second generation Korean American who received his BA from Emory University and his MED and EDS and PhD from Georgia State University. He is a licensed psychologist and a nationally certified school psychologist who has trained or practiced in Georgia, Michigan, Kentucky, and Texas. Please welcome Dr. Samuel Kim. Thank you. Pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet all of you here. Um, it's quite an honor, and it's such an honor to speak to church leaders and to be able to talk about mental health. Uh, I, I am just a firm believer that we need to have more intersections like this. You know, before I get started, one of the things that always hits me when I'm listening to a speaker is I want to know the speaker's context. I want to know, you know, where are they from? You know, what sort of makes them who they are? And so for my introduction, I just want to say that I am one of those Korean Americans that is not from one of the large cities on the coasts. I was born and raised in a rural part of Georgia. Um, well, I like to say that I was physically born uh, in a rural place called Columbus, Georgia, lived there all my life. And then I went to uh, my undergrad and graduates training down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where I tell people that's where I was spiritually born. And I came to Christ uh, during my college years. Um, but growing up, you know, being a second generation Korean American, I really didn't meet any other Koreans who were outside of my family uh, for the longest time. And so that's sort of the context that I bring with. Uh, I've lived in uh, Texas, thought I needed to get out of the South, overshot, landed in Michigan during the polar vortex. And boy, it was just a little too cold for this simple Southern boy. Um, then went down to Kentucky and, uh, and now I've slowly made my way west towards Dallas. And then after a brief stint in Dallas, I'm now living in Denver, Colorado, where I am loving the mountains and I'm still getting used to the dryness and the altitude up here. So I wish this was a smaller group so that I could get to know all of you, but hopefully there'll be an opportunity for us to chat at some point. One of the things that I want to point out for this particular session is this is not a mind reading session. And I know it's like, oh, is he poking fun at it? I've literally had people come up to me as like, you know, do you do mind reading? Um, and things like, no. And even the things that are more plausible is like, oh, do you train people how to look at their face or their particular body language to be able to tell what they're thinking? Not really. We don't really do much on the mental health side that's beyond what the person is sharing with us. It's important to note that this session is also not sort of any sort of psychological training or counseling training, but really I'm here to give you some active listening skills that you can take, particularly for individual meetings that you have with people within your church, maybe your community, and maybe even family and friends. One of the things that I do want to point out here is this is an accumulation of different things that I have taught over the years. Um, one of the classes that I teach is how to do counseling for mental health professionals. And it is a grand buffet of skills and things that I could bring in. And what I've done in this session is I decided to go to that big buffet of skills, of these counseling skills. And like, you know, this looks good. Oh, this would be great. And so I've put together a nice little platter for you that I've curated, I think would be really good to help those in the church become active and better listeners, especially for their congregants. So what are the different things that I picked up from this grand buffet? Well, I'm going to start off talking about a model for listening, uh, some natural reflexes, how to create a safe space for uh, sharing. Then we're gonna talk about some basic skills around like questions, reflections, summaries. And if we have time, I wanna hit a couple of troubleshooting um, questions that I've gotten frequently in the past. But before we get started, I want you to take a step back. Just lean back in the chair that you're sitting in and you're welcome to close your eyes for a second. Who in your life listen to you really well? 
who in your life was someone that you could go to, you were going through something and they just listened to you really well. Like you felt heard by this person. Does everyone have someone in mind? It could have been a pastor, a, an older um, brother or sister in the church. Uh, it could have been a teacher, a family member, someone you respect um, that's out there. Yeah, it looks like we have a someone's uh, spiritual director was this person who listened really well. Now I want you to think about the second question. What made them a good listener? And please feel free to um, put down these characteristics into the chat. Like what made them a good listener? This person who listened to you really well. Eye contact. Powerful questions. I'm going to assume powerful questions are ones that are very insightful or just seem to get at the heart of what it is that you're going through. Uh, quiet, but attuned. You felt love. You weren't interrupted. There was a lot of empathy. These are fantastic characteristics. And it's something that I share with my students who come into my counseling class. It's a lot of counseling is learning how to listen to someone else. And all of us know what it's like to be with someone who is a good listener, and we can name those characteristics. Now I turn this question to you and ask you, how many of these characteristics do you embody? I can bring you these tools. I can bring you these items from the buffet of skills, but you have to be hungry for them. You have to have certain skills of being willing to walk with someone and meeting them where they are um, in order to help them through that. And so I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through all of these different skills that we're going to talk about today. So I've done this talk a few times uh, for different groups before, but one thing that I added for you all that I haven't done before and a question that's come up for me is you come up with all of these listening skills, like questions and how to do reflections, how do you respond to certain comments? And if you're teaching someone how to listen, one of the questions that comes up is, what are you listening for? And so this is where I want to start off with um, in my talk today in talking about this model for listening. So once upon a time in psychology, um, behaviorism, if any of you have heard of that before, was really, really big in psychology. And condensed down and abbreviated down to the simplest form, behaviorism simply says there's something in the environment um, that affects you and then eventually leads to a behavior. Um, so one of the classic examples, if any of you have a pet at home, like a pet dog, what happens when you crinkle the paper bag that has the dog food in it, or you know, you're opening something uh, that has the dog food, or you're opening a can uh, with the food? It makes the dog start to salivate. They start to, they become more aware of their hunger. And what happens? They immediately start running to you. In the same way, a lot of these principles were analogized to how people learn. You know, how do we learn in all the different environments that we are in? And the idea was, oh, when we learn something, we're reinforced. So someone tells us, oh, you did a good job, or we get a piece of candy, and therefore we're gonna do it more often. And this was a dominating perspective um, in the field of psychology for the longest time. Well, there are different people who came along and said, I'm not sure that this is the entirety of how people behave. Like this doesn't explain everything. And it really just makes people a victim of the environment. It's like just what happens to me in the environment is now what I experience. One of the observations that was made in a series of very well-known studies show that, wait a second, people learn by watching. They learn by listening to others and they learn by watching others. They don't necessarily have to do it themselves to learn, like that's not the only mechanism. And so this uh, model, which it comes from social cognitive theory, put all of these elements from behaviorism and said, look, you are affected by the environment just as much as you can affect the environment. So it's not just the environment's encouraging us to do some sort of behavior, but now we can engage in behavior to change our environment in some way. And what this means is that now people have agency. 
Well, if people have agency and can think about their behaviors and act in certain ways, then how a person's thinking and feeling is going to be critical for understanding what they're going to eventually do. So an example that I like to throw up is, uh, let's say that, you know, you're at church and you, a person in the congregation comes along and they see a bunch of other people helping out, uh, setting up chairs for an event or maybe for service. Well, they see other people helping, so they go and help put the chairs um, up as well. Others are noticing, it's like, oh, thank you for coming to help us. Well, that's going to encourage this person to help out again. And thus, it can lead to them helping out more and more later on. Interestingly enough, helping out by setting up those chairs also influences those in the environment. It's like, who are the different people uh, that see this? Like, oh, you know, so-and-so likes to help out at church and helps with all these different actions. So I'm going to ask them or ask them if they can come out and help. And there we have more of that setting up behavior. The environment is a big part. It's all the people around you. The environment includes your family, your friends, your church leaders, um, those that are in your congregation, everything in your environment. Personal characteristics are those things about you. How are you feeling? What are the thoughts that you have? How's your spiritual life doing? Um, those are the things that are to that individual person. And then finally, the behavior, the thing that you do. And so when I engage in all of these listening skills and when I show these listening skills to you, I'm also asking you, it's like, can you pick up on the context of this person? You know, what are the things that are around this person that are affecting their behaviors, that are affecting how they feel, think, um, how, how are they affecting their environment, and what are the influences around the environment? All right, so that's a brief, brief model. Next, I want to talk about natural reflexes. So get your fingers ready, because I'm going to ask you to type some things into the chat box. For the natural reflexes, I'm going to start off with an example scenario. We're going to talk about Caleb, who is a 10-year-old. Uh, he attends a local uh, elementary school. And for Christmas recently, he got a Nintendo Switch, and he loves playing Super Mario Odyssey and, and Pokemon on it all the time. Like, he is just in love with this machine. In school, he's been getting all A's, although most recently, like the, the midterm reports that are coming in and the, his initial grades, they're showing that his grades are starting to slip. They're kind of venturing into B and C land. Also, at the beginning of this school uh, semester, uh, his parents say, you know, we've been fighting a lot lately. Um, he just doesn't go to sleep when he's supposed to go to sleep, and he's not finishing his homework on time. Um, grades seem to be dropping everywhere, according to his parents. Um, and every night, Caleb apparently begs to stay up. Oh, can I just stay up for 30 more minutes or 20 more minutes or 10 more minutes? And sometimes he's in the break of tears when he's asking to stay up a little bit longer. Now, what should the parents do? If this was a parent in your church who had come to you um, with this scenario, what, what are some things that come to mind? Like what, what's your initial reaction to what to do in this type of situation? <laughs> yes, uh, taking the switch away. Hear what's going on. Ooh, having a conversation with Kalo. I love that. Oh, what's the real issue? Yeah, excellent. What's he avoiding? Yeah, could there be some sort of video game addiction going on? Are there other underlying issues? How are the parents feeling about this? You know, where are they in all of this? Yeah, and is this some sort of escape? Oh, looks like I've lost my slides. Hold on. Oh, there we go. Good. Yeah. Um, when I show this to uh, my classes when I'm teaching my counseling class, 
they all come up with different solutions and different ideas. Like we should limit the video game time that he has or restrict his access to the games that he has. Or can we do some sort of check-in uh, for when he does his homework or making sure that he does his homework, creating some sort of accountability system at home? Or can we create some sort of new structure at home where only from this time to this time he must do homework, from this time to this time is available for game, but he must go to bed. Um, it's creating some sort of reinforcement punishment structure at home to help him become more disciplined. And it's not that any of these things are wrong, but what if, what if you found a little bit deeper that Caleb was being bullied at school, that something was going on in that environment? Or what if Caleb is having reoccurring nightmares? Every time he goes to sleep, he sees the same thing uh, over and over again. Or what if he's experiencing some low self-esteem um, that's making you feel like he's not worth it, that he can't be who he needs to be? Um, or let's go even simpler. What if he's just afraid of the dark? Now, this providing some different um, perspectives and putting these little twists in the situation that are possible is not an admonishment. I am not saying that the answers that y'all put in the chat room, chat box are wrong. They could be the right answer or what will help this person. However, it is our natural reflex. When we hear a problem and someone tell us this problem, we immediately think, how do I fix this? Uh, what's the solution to this puzzle? Or what's the solution to this problem that I need to go in? And that's our natural reflex. I don't think natural reflexes are bad because what it means is that you are a helper. You are someone who wants to help people. And that's why you're here. If you're a church leader, um, I assume you're in that position because God's called you to serve his people and you want to help others. And so that natural reflex is really strong in us. In terms of being a good listener, I would say, are there ways that we can hold back that natural reflex a little bit? and to just dive a little bit deeper. Um, I'm reminded of a, uh, a carpentry saying that says, when you're making something, measure twice and cut once. Um, and I think that's the same thing for listening. You want to you know, ask a couple of more questions, get a little bit more detail uh, before you provide some sort of solution. The first step that I think is most important in creating uh, a place where someone can feel safe sharing is to create a safe space. And the way that you can do that is how do you communicate that what is being shared in that environment is something that's being kept private? Um, you can tell them right off the bat, it's like, hey, you know, whatever you share is between you and me. Um, with a few exceptions. There are times when, you know, if they're going to harm themselves, you probably want to notify someone. Um, or if it's a very, very serious issue and you're not sure that the two of you can handle it. Um, as I have here on the slide, one possible line that you could share is, I think this is bigger than just the two of us talking. What do you think about me bringing this to Pastor X? Or what do you think about me talking to X to see if we can get some help with that? Did my slide go away, David? Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but your slide is not showing currently. Um, we'll see oh, if we so can. That's so weird. Are you on two screens or one screen? I am on two. Okay. This was working. Uh, it was. Day. It was. Here it comes. All right, we're good. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to keep an eye on it. So, yeah, how do you go about doing that? Well, if you're going to share with someone else, meaning you're going to adjust that privacy that you were talking about, always ask. Um, and sometimes I know that can be a scary thing because a person may say, well, I don't want you to share. It's like, I don't want you to go to someone else. You don't have to always ask, especially if it's something really serious. But if you don't ask, you need to let the person know, saying that, hey, this is a really serious thing and I think it's bigger than the two of us. I have to go share this with you know so-and-so. Um, would you mind coming with me or being with me when we talk about this? Because I want to make sure that you're safe. Um, but think about how you create a space of safety uh, for the people who come and talk to you. So we've talked about some different things, some natural reflexes, how to create a safe space. And these are really the context things. 
The questions, reflections, and summaries from here on are more about what are the specific skills? Are there different ways that you can go about using these tools to get information and to bring clarity to what's going on? So the first one, questions. And there's two flavors of questions that are out there. There's a close-ended and then there's an open-ended question. Close-ended questions are good for getting specific pieces of information. They generally have some really short answers, but there's something very specific that the two of you are looking for. For open-ended, that's more of an exploration question, and they tend to have longer answers, as well as the person has more freedom to go wherever they want with that particular uh, question. So examples of these questions. Uh, Close-ended questions. Uh, yes, no. Did you talk to your friend uh, recently? Have you found a community here at church? So these are questions that can be answered with a yes or no, and you're pretty much over with it. Like They don't have to go further and elaborate further uh, because these questions really are just looking for that specific answer. Aside from yes and no, there's also the informational piece. You know, what city did you grow up in? Or who do you trust in your life? And these are, yes, they're not yes or no questions, but they are informational. So if I give you a city and if I give you a name, that answers that question completely. And um, it may encourage some people to unpack more and talk about you know, what they're thinking more, but this is the main piece of information that you're looking for. Open-ended questions, on the other hand, um, there's lots of different ways you can go about this. One is the broad spec, the broad aspect. What's been on your mind lately? Uh, what have you been thinking about? How are things really going for you? These are very, very big questions. You know, I, I hear how are you being used almost as a greeting these days and say, oh, I'm just doing fine. And it almost feels like a close-ended question. But if you're in that situation where you're sitting with a congregant and you're having a conversation and you ask, hey, how are things really going for you? that can really unpack a lot of stuff that's going on with them. There are also what are called narrow open questions. So these are a little bit more specific, but still open enough to where the person can give quite a bit of information and kind of tell about what they're feeling. What do you like about the church? Um, what do you wish you could change about your job? So a little bit more specific, but still broad and open. With these kinds of questions, one of the tips that I always give my students is avoid why questions as much as you can. I And what I mean by this is simply asking why. Why did you do this? Why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do something? And the reason I ask my students to avoid it is that most of the time when you ask a why question, it sounds a little accusatory and it makes it feel like, I have to explain myself to someone. Um, think about when a, a young child does something wrong, a parent may ask them, why did you do that? And so it's not exactly the best kind of scenario or best way to build that space with the person when you're asking this sort of why question. One question that I do want to throw in is the miracle question because you may be talking with someone and they just feel like everything is going wrong, nothing is working. And one of the things that I do is I like to ask the miracle question. And the miracle question simply is, hey, if you, let's say you woke up tomorrow and a miracle happened, making tomorrow a perfect day, what would it look like? And this is a fantastic question because it shifts the conversation a little bit. And it helps me to see, okay, what is this person really looking for? Like, what would make this situation that they're going through a better situation? And then from there, um, one of the things that I like to ask uh, when I ask the miracle question, they, they show me what a day, a perfect day looks like. And they show me the aspects of a perfect day. Then I ask, well, what needs to change in order to get you closer to that? So I'm not asking them, you know, what has to happen today to make this perfect day happen, but what are some things that can be done that brings you closer to that? And there you can find lots of ways to kind of think about what is going to help this person um, and get through the situation that they've brought uh, to me. 
So those are the different kinds of questions. Next, I want to talk about reflections. So remember, as I said, questions, reflections, and summaries are different tools to really show this person, hey, I'm listening to you and I'm walking with you. That's what these skills are designed to do. So these are these active listening skills of just telling you, I'm listening, I'm here with you. Reflections, if they're used wrong, make you sound like a parrot, <laughs> that you're just simply parroting back what the person is saying. But when it's used well, it's showing, I hear you, and I, and I see what it is that you're going through. And so it can involve repetition or paraphrasing. And then, of course, there's two different flavors of reflections, the first one being simple. So simple reflections tend to be even one word, or as I've told my students in the past, they can be utterances. So yeah, reflection can be, mm-hmm, oh, wow, yeah, oh, wow. So these are reflections as well. They're very, very simple, and if you only do simple reflections, um, it's not really getting much of a conversation out of the two of you, but they can be helpful, especially if someone's giving a lot of information. So here's an example. Let's say that you have a church member who came to you and said, this past month at work has been really rough. A simple reflection that you can give after that is really rough. And yeah, you can turn reflections into a question. Notice I, in this reflection, the church leader didn't give anything specific more to it, but is really questioning really rough. Like, what do you mean by really rough? Like, what's been going on? The church member goes, yeah, I've had so many projects to do at work, and my boss has been telling me I need to do well on my next evaluation if I want to get promoted. They just tell me to do a good job, but it's not that easy. So what's a possible reflection to that? Um, you can put it in the chat, or you can kind of think about it and write it down. It's like, how would you reflect what's going on here? One possible way to reflect on that is to say, that's a lot to carry on your shoulders. So it's not taking exactly what they said and repeating it, but now I'm saying something that sort of wraps up that little statement that they've told me and lets them know that I'm on the same page as them. So yes, uh, someone put, sounds like you have a lot on your plate. Same vein of thought right there. So these are simple reflections that tell a person, hey, I'm walking with you, I'm hearing you. One other kind of tip to think about when you're doing reflections is using the language of the person. So you'll notice here uh, for the first reflection, it says really rough. And that's good because it's using the language of the person. It's taking what they said uh, rather than completely reinterpreting it. It doesn't mean that interpretations are bad. But if you throw in reflections every now and then using the words that they are using, it's another way to show, hey, I'm really listening to you. The other flavor of reflections is, are what are called complex reflections. So these tend to be longer and have more interpretation that's woven into them. So let's take the same example that I showed you a moment ago. This past month at work has been really rough. So same thing that we saw earlier. A complex reflection versus um, really rough or rough is this month has been really pushing you down. Um, so that can be stated as a question or, or stated as a statement, or it could be a question of this month has really been pushing you down um, and allows them space to come forward and give more information to that. So yeah, I've had so many projects to do at work and my boss has been telling me I need to do well on my next evaluation if I want to get promoted. They tell me just do a good job, but it's not that easy a complex reflection. That's a lot to carry on your shoulders. I'm getting the sense that you feel like nothing will be good enough for your boss. So in that last complex reflection, we took a little jump. We took a little leap with our interpretation to kind of say, oh, well, this is what it seems like to me. This is the story that you're writing for me. Am I on the same page with that? So take a look at this scenario. Uh, this church member saying this past month at work has been really rough. How would you respond to it? You know, what, what are different ways that you can reflect to that? 
So we had one person saying, um, you can say that they seem to have a lot on your plate or there's a lot going on on your plate right now. What are other ways that you can reflect to this particular scenario? Either we got some ingenious reflections coming <laughs> or people are uh, keyboard uh, shy. Yeah, oh wow, what's been rough about it? Yeah, that's lots of good information you can get from that. I like that, saying it feels like nothing's good enough. It's just a little bit of interpretation, just a little bit of a leap. Um, and if you're wrong with that leap, uh, the person will tell you. And once they tell you it's wrong, you can always backtrack. Um, and ask more questions to get a better understanding. And if you're right, that will really help that conversation move forward. Uh, sounds like things are a little overwhelming right now. Yep, it's in that same vein. Um, and these are skills, if you're not familiar with these skills, to really want to practice. Like you really want to practice doing reflections. Um, and it's great to try to practice doing reflections when you're talking with your family or friends, um, but it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Yep, sounds stressful. Uh, what project is the hardest right now? Yeah, that's taking a look at, let's go into more detail. What are the things that are really hitting you and bothering you and how can we tackle those things? Yeah, I love these. All right, so we've talked about the different models for listening. We've talked about these natural reflexes that we have, which are really just a reflection of how much we want to help people. Um, we talked about how to create a safe space uh, for people who are talking to us. So, you know, if somebody wants to talk to you about something really sensitive, maybe during lunch after service is not the best place in the big cafeteria. Maybe you wanna find a place where there'll be more privacy uh, for them to share. Uh, questions, we talked about open and closed. Reflections, we've talked about simple and complex. And lastly, I just wanna hit on summaries. So summaries are a little bit different from reflections in that they are almost these aggregations or the reflections coming together. So all those things that you have been reflecting uh, are put together into this big summary. They highlight the things that have happened in the conversation so far. And more importantly, it gives the person a chance to clarify anything. Nothing is worse than being misunderstood when you're talking to someone. And so you want to make sure that when you are listening to someone, especially if they're sharing something that's very serious, if they're sharing something that's really, really um, bothering them, you want to make sure you're on the same page as much as possible. And one of the best ways to do that is to summarize periodically to make sure, hey, 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 you've said a lot of things so far. I just want to make sure I'm still following you. The other cool trick about summaries is that if you think that a direction of what you're listening to is kind of going all over the place or you want to give it a little bit more direction um, back to something that you believe might be more hard of the situation, summaries are a great way to pivot. You don't want to switch topics without acknowledging that you've heard the person what's been said so far. Giving that acknowledgement, providing that summary, and then asking a question to kind of spin it to another direction may give an opportunity to focus somewhere else. So let me give you a, an example of a summary. So we're taking that same scenario, uh, the, the church member who's having it really rough at work and just feeling a lot of stress. Uh, let's say that you've had this conversation with them and you respond with, we've talked a lot about your struggles at work, especially this past month you really want to get a promotion to help with the finances of your home and take care of your family. At the same time, your boss is giving you more and more work that's slowly wearing you down. So that's a summary of what was discussed so far. Let's say that you think that there's some family stuff that he hasn't talked about. You think that there's some family situations that are going on with this church member that um, haven't been touched on. Well, at this point, you can say, 
you know, how's your family handling uh, what you're going through right now? How are they being supportive? Or where does your family stand now? But you see, after I've done the summary, I can switch topics. It's okay too, because I can ask a question and go a different uh, direction. If you get a lot of information from this person and you do the summary and you think, oh, I think there's some other stuff that I haven't quite touched at yet. One of my favorite questions to use um, when I'm talking really with anyone is, what else? Uh, you're going through all this with work. You're feeling stresses from your boss. You're feeling the burden of taking care of your family. You're wondering if you can take care of your family. What else? What else is wearing you down? And I want to make a key distinction in that language. What else invites someone to give more information? It invites someone to bring other pieces of information or other thoughts into the conversation versus something like anything else has a subtle way of saying, okay, we're about to end, but I'm going to give you a last chance to say something. So small nuances with the language really communicate uh, different things to the people. So my favorite question is always to ask what else. Another thing that you can do at the end of your summary is to say, am I understanding you? Am I in the ballpark? Um, does that sound about right to you? And it invites the person to say, oh yeah, there's a lot of things that I'm going on at work. Um, yeah, I'm thinking a lot about my family, um, but it's not just work that's wearing me down. There's other things that are really, really hurting me right now. Um, and so you can go into all of that as well. Summaries are a powerful tool to help direct the conversation. And I like to think of summaries almost like an opportunity to use the rudder of a ship as you're going in this conversation. It's a way for you to make sure that you understand where you are with the person, as well as make shifts if you feel like you need to make shifts or ask about other things. All right. We've talked about a lot of different skills today, and we've kind of done this mad dash across all of them. Uh, but I do want to stop and talk a little about uh, some troubleshooting scenarios that people have run into in the past. So when I've done talks like this before, uh, one of the questions I've gotten is, okay, Dr. Kim, this is great, but there are people I talk to and they're not saying much. What do I do? One direction that you can go in that uh, scenario is ask more open-ended questions. It's a possibility there's too many closed-ended questions that only require brief answers. So they might be informational, they might be yes or no questions, but maybe this person just needs some more space with the question. So instead of asking, um, you know, how is it that you want to um, be better um, at work versus, hey, what's been bothering you lately? and going more and more open with your questions. Another one that my students struggle with, and let me tell you, I struggled with this when I was first learning how to do uh, therapy, is silence. Silence is one of those things that is hard to do at times, to sit in silence in a conversation with someone. And even just a few seconds can feel like an eternity. For instance, That was only 10 seconds. And now I have lost my screen. Oh, there you are. Um, and so it's important to have that those periods of silence because you might have asked a really big question. Uh, asking someone, you know, what's the most important thing for you in your life? That's a big question. They may need a little bit of space to really think about that. And lastly, honest, be honest and say, you know, I really want to help you in whatever way that I can. Um, and one question that I've learned to ask sometimes if someone doesn't seem like they want to talk to me is, I'm really concerned about you, but I don't have to be the person that talks to you. Is there someone that you would rather talk to? And it, it was very humbling as a school psychologist in a school district to think, oh, the mental health professional may not be the one who can get to this kid. The mental health professional may not be the one who this person wants to talk to. And that's okay. I want them to make that social support connection. I want them to connect with someone who can help them through what they're going through. 
On the opposite end, I've also heard uh, people come to me and say, what do I do about people who are talking a lot? And man, they are just going all over the place. They seem to have a laundry list of problems and things that are going through. One of the things I would suggest is you, you reflect in those times and provide uh, frequent reflections um, just to let them know you're still walking with them. Additionally, for people who seem to list off a lot of things, summaries are a great way to bookmark the conversation and say, hey, it, these are the things I've heard from you. You know, you talked about this, 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 and this are all things that are really getting at you. Um, is that right? Am I hearing you correctly? So that they know that they're feeling heard because it's possible this person may be sharing a lot because they're not sure if they've painted a clear enough picture for you. Uh, lastly, uh, you know, one of the things that I've heard when I've done uh, talks like this before is like, oh my gosh, this seems like so many different skills to do all at once. It's like, how do I keep track of all these things uh, when I'm listening to someone? And what I would encourage you to is just try to take one skill at a time. Don't try to like put on all of these all at once. Uh, just take on one and see if you can incorporate that. Like, can you do intentional reflections uh, when you're listening to someone? And for those of you who are more experienced and actually have training in counseling, I hope that this was a good reminder of, of those basic listening skills and that you continue to share uh, with the other people within your congregation. All right, uh, the last thing uh, I want to share is if there are any questions, um, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this, but I do have a website, it's juneanddrsam.com, and the reason I'm excited about this is in the next uh, few weeks, I've been actually working on a podcast with uh, in conjunction with Mustard Seed Generation, and the podcast is we're going to talk about the latest research on mental health and Korean Americans. And so, um, you know, we think that there's a major barrier for a lot of practitioners and just people in the public that you can't access academic articles. And so what we want to do in this podcast is to share, hey, here are the things that are coming out and here are the ways that we think that they can be applicable to Korean Americans. Thank you so much, Dr. Samuel Kim, and I'm glad that you plugged your upcoming podcast. I'm, I'm glad to learn about it and we'll listen to it as well. So folks, we have 15 minutes for Q&A and we can, I'll be monitoring the Q&A chat as folks are formulating their questions. You know, I, I'll just read one by Nathan, which you sort of answered, Dr. Kim, uh, in the troubleshooting slide, but I'll just repeat it here in case you have anything else to add. The question from Nathan is, how do we draw people out who are really reserved? Reflective listening doesn't work if they don't share more than a word or two. You gave us um, some examples about silence and open-ended questions. Do you want to say anything more on this topic? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And yeah, the tips that I gave were brief, but yeah, how do you get to a more open-ended aspect uh, with the questions that you ask? Um, silence is a big thing. And I am always trying to be conscientious of how long silence is, because if you just sit in silence, it feels like an eternity. So what I sometimes do is I'll count in my head. So I know it's like, okay, I'm giving sufficient time rather than doing the quick silence that felt like it was 20 minutes, but it was really just two seconds. Um, one of the things that I used to do uh, when I was working with a middle schooler, um, he would not give me anything. Like It wasn't even short answers that he gave me. He literally did not respond to my questions at all. He just sat back and just looked at me. And I tried different things. I even suggested, would you like to take a walk outside? You want to play Uno? Um, and those are other classic tactics that I use. Like, okay, maybe if we play a card game or, you know, if we go outside or change the setting, they'll be more open to talking. What got him to talk is one day I came in and had him do a sentence completion. It's like, here, I'm going to start some sentences and I just want you to finish what they are. So I am. I am happy when... Um, my family makes me feel, my leaders make me feel. And interestingly enough, 
that was something that he was willing to participate in and actually share a lot of different things when I just gave him the start of a sentence and had him finish through. So every person, it's different. You're welcome to be honest with them and say, hey, if you don't want to talk to me, you don't have to, but I want to connect you with someone who you will talk to. Who is it that you want to talk to? I have another question here. Um, let me just put it here. It's from Theo. How do I create a safe space for listening when church leaders talk about a desire for religious freedom to discriminate in some way related to a protected category? Oh, gosh. There's a lot of components in that question. Um, Take what you can. Take what yeah, you can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can answer this question, and I hope I'm getting as all of it as I can. Um, you know, creating a safe space, I think, starts with the character of you and who you are. Do you have a reputation of being trustworthy? When people share things with you, do you listen to them non-judgmentally? And is this something that you keep to yourself? Even, you know, what was described in another session that I attended today is like, do you share it with others saying, oh, this is a prayer request? Um, or do you really keep this private um, and follow the wishes of the person? I think that uh, with your character of who you are, are ways to create that safe space. It's not just so much, is there a room that's safe or is this you know, a room that has like the different things in it? It's how are you creating that space with your reputation and who you are? And I think it's starting there. Um, and as you build that trustworthiness, I hope that you're able to have conversations uh, with church leaders and show like, hey, the things that we want to do are not in conflict with the things that you want to do uh, for this church. And um, Dr. Kim, Samantha is asking if you're willing to list, um, share the list of those finish the sentences. I think, oh. I think people are like finding it really helpful. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, they are called sentence completion tasks. And I dare say if you just Google that, you should be able to find tons of them out there. Um, if you pop me an email, I do have one that's a hundred items long <laughs> if you want that many. Um, but honestly, you can find a bunch of these on Google and they're all, they all work just as well. All right, so here we have something from Edward. I minister in an Asian American context. Parents often say that their kids don't listen to them. I encourage them to listen empathetically, but they often feel it is futile. What else can I do to help equip parents and encourage them? Oh gosh, that's a big tough one. <clears throat> and I, I might even venture a guess is like, I'm wondering if the parents you're thinking of, Edward, might be parents of adolescents. <laughs> Those teenage years, there's a reason why in the psychological literature we refer to the teenage years as storm and stress. Mm. <laughs> um, when I talk with parents and I've done consultation with parents, especially if their kids have certain behavior problems, the first place I go to is what sort of a relationship have you built with your children? Um, are there ways that you have um, built a time that you see with them? Uh, what we call in the field are unconditional uh, times. So are there times built in, maybe weekly, that even if they were really bad, even if something's going on, you and your child are together and doing something. Um, whether it is, you know, watching a show together, uh, it's a weekly meal. Um, one of the things that my father and I used to do when I was growing up was he would teach, well, in all honesty, he was trying to teach me how to play Paduk uh, Go. And, and well, I didn't, <laughs> that was a little too hard for me. So we ended up playing Omok or just getting five in a row with those. And so that's something that my father and I did. We would play that together. And that's something that we did no matter what on the weekends. Um, so that's my first question is like, have you built in things where you are spending time with your child, even if it's just five or 10 minutes a week, having that space is the start of building that relationship where you can communicate. If you as the parent and the child have not developed a space or not developed a habit of communicating, 
it's not going to be available when something goes wrong. It's not going to be available when they're not feeling good. It's not going to be available when there are things going on in your life. And so how do you build that up from the start? And so I encourage you, even if it's a few minutes, hold that time sacred once a month or once a week or whatever regularity. And it's a place of no matter what, they can bring anything to you at that time. We've basically hit most of the questions. Um, Dr. Kim, do you have yeah. anything else you want to say? You know, the biggest thing that I want to say is, you know, I long to see um, a church that is filled with people who are open to listening. Um, I think being open to listen is one of the most powerful ways that the church can be a refuge. Uh, for many people, especially with all the things that are going on. Um, the other speakers have touched on how much uh, COVID, as well as the social unrest that's going on, has affected people. And we have to recognize that everyone's bandwidth uh, has been reduced. Um, it may not be a lot, it may not be, or it may be just a little bit, uh, but everyone's has been reduced to some length because we're not designed to be under this much stress for this long a period. And so recognizing that and being open and empathetic to one another, I think is really, really critical. All right. This one I think is oh. really relevant. I have, an, I have another question here that is really relevant in terms of uh, mode. When, okay. when people are truly heard, it is transformative. Should we always aim for face-to-face -face visits or is phone and video okay too? <laughs> That's a great, great question. And I think in all honesty, the field is really struggling with this. What does it mean to meet with someone face-to-face -face or do teletherapy? Um, the field is trying to shift over to making teletherapy a thing. However, we still don't have a full, clear view of how effective it is. It's, there's still mixed evidence out there. However, what I'll say is any contact is better than no contact. So if you can, if that's the only way that you can communicate them, then communicate with them uh, via text. You can always suggest, hey, if you're texting back and forth with someone, would you mind hopping on a call? Would you mind uh, getting on a video chat real quick? Um, this is really important that, and I want to make sure that I understand you the way that you want to be understood. Um, so. I would say face-to-face -face is the best, but I'm only saying that it's the best before COVID. I don't know what that's going to look like, especially if there are people with um, health concerns or compromised immune systems. Yeah, meeting in person is not going to be the best for them, but it just depends on what you get. And as I said, anything is better than nothing. With that, let's give our thanks to Dr. Kim. Um, thank you so much. Dr. Kim for your presentation and these practical skills re regarding active listening for congregational change.